Well, I'm going to uh, invite you to grab your beverages and unfortunately cut your coffee time short this morning. And uh, come on back in and we'll take our seats. As we continue this morning, we're going to look into uh, God's Word. My name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho. And that video is just so true to life, isn't it? We all need community in some way. And so uh, if you are new with us, this is a fantastic time to be coming on a journey with us here at Jericho Ridge because we're going through some of our core values, really who we are as a community. And using the language of the New Testament, we talk about our goal or our objective as seeking to follow Jesus and being disciples who embody God's love everywhere that we go. And so this January, we're looking at a teaching series called Follow Me, The Adventure of Discipleship. And we're using the image or the language of a ski hill to help us understand and to help us step more fully into what it actually looks like to follow Jesus and to learn to embody God's love everywhere that we go. And this is a process that all of us have to learn how to engage with. It's not something that just comes to us, just, uh, just like skiing. You got to get out there. You got to get on the bunny hill. You got to put in the time. You got to work at it and also understand, like we talked about last week, that part of this is God's wonderful gift to us. And so at Jericho, uh, if you've been around for any length of time, we have five core values that guide everything that we do, all the decisions that we make, all of the activities that we undertake with. We've got them up on this banner here so you can see. And uh, each week in the month of January, we're going to explore another one of those values and try to understand what that looks like and what it means to live it out. So last week we started with the first one, transformational truth, and we asked, what does it actually look like to learn to allow God to transform us. And we say, when we're talking about transformational truth, that we allow God's spirit and God's word to change us. And today we're going to look at the second value of those five, and uh, authentic community, which Pastor Wally already mentioned. And when we talk about authentic community, what we mean and the little phrase that we use to describe that is we give each other permission not to pretend. We give each other permission not to have to pretend. Many places in the modern world in which we live and work, there's a sense of a need to, to keep your guard up in some way, to not bring your full self into that environment. We're accustomed to curating our lives and to releasing components that we want others to see or engage with. We manage our persona as well, whether it's in person or online, to try and give the right impressions to other people around us as to who we are. And so we post just the right pictures on Instagram, being at the right places with the right people, doing the right sets of things. And that's fine to a certain extent, but there can become 
a sense that if we over-curate our lives, that no one actually knows the real us and that we don't bring our full self into any real environment. And so here at Jericho, one of our goals or desires is to create places where you can be real with each other. You can be real with God, with your questions, with the wrestling component parts of faith. We talk about it, uh, we say we want to be a group of real people who are committed to experiencing a real faith in God that touches all of the aspects of real life. We want to be an authentic community. And this is hard work. This is a part of our commitment to each other that does touch every aspect of lives, but it's a challenging part because there's two parts to this, right? There's the authentic part, and then there's the community part. The longer description that we use when we talk about authentic community teases this out a bit more. It says this, God exists in community and models for us what it means to be both vitally connected with God and interdependent with one another. We desire at Jericho relationships with each other that are transparent, supportive, and encouraging and rooted in a desire to love as we have been loved by God. And so this morning we're going to look into the scriptures and we're going to unpack that a little bit. And we're going to look at several truths about community that need to be present in order to make it authentic. We're going to talk about where does this idea come from, authentic community? Why would it be a value for us? And we're going to have to explore some of our own expectations and presuppositions when we talk about that. And then we're going to model it uh, by the way that we share communion together later on. So the first thing that we need to ask ourselves is, where in the world does this value come from? Why would authenticity and authentic community be a part of our values here as a community? Is it just a great sociological idea that somehow togetherness is good or that people should be well supported by being surrounded with others? That's wise, that's valuable, but is there anything more to it than that? Is there anything that makes Christian community distinct or authentic or ought to make Christian community distinct and authentic from other groups or gatherings of people in our culture? Why would a church be a place that would strive for this, that would put this as something of a value? Well, the first thing that we would note about authentic community, intriguingly, is that it's actually shaped and modeled for us by God. Community is God's idea because community is actually embedded in God's essence. In the book of Genesis, one of the first self-revelatory statements that God makes, God says, let us make humanity in our image to be like us. Note right away the language of community in God's revelation 
Not, I will make women and men in my image, says God, but God says, let us make humanity in our image. God exists in community and models for us community. And biblical writers and theologians have wrestled and wrestled and wrestled down through the ages to figure out how to try and represent this well and try and capture this thought of God existing in community. Three distinct persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and yet one. And we've settled on language that's not in the Bible itself, but we use the language of the Trinity or Trinitarian community to describe this threeness and also oneness. Reformed, uh, retired Christian reform church pastor and leader Len Vanderzee says it beautifully. He says this, at the center of all reality, at the heart of the universe, there exists an eternal divine community of perfect love. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And there's a certain logic to Trinitarian belief because the Bible says that God is love. And if love is God's essence, the only way that God can be love is for God to be a community of divine persons because love needs expression in order to be love. Love does not exist without community. Love does not exist in a vacuum. The nature of true love is not binding or limiting, but it's expansive. Love flows outward. It grows, and therefore, the creation of the universe is actually an overflow from the original divine community as it expands in love and delight to include all beloved creatures. God exists in and is community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, an eternal community of divine love and models for us what a loving community looks like because the Trinitarian community actually forms the model for all human communities. There's an independence, but interdependence that exists between God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And some of the analogies, I don't know what analogies you heard or have heard or tried to wrestle with, with, the communi- with to try and understand the Trinity. Some of them make the Trinity seem like it's a problem to be solved instead of a reality in which we are called and invited to live. And so if we see it as a problem to try and describe and get our heads around, we're missing part of the point. The Holy Trinity is not a chain of command. It's not an amorphous energy field of love like the force in Star Wars. It's not three gods who get along really well like the three musketeers. Each person of the Trinity is irreducibly and uniquely themselves, distinct in three persons, and yet they are 
perfectly united in love and purpose. It is a true community of perfect love. Independent but interdependent at all times. And the model that God reveals to us of God existing in community ought then to help us ask questions about the communities in which we live and create as humans. And one of the questions that it ought to bring up is that if God exists interdependently within the Trinity, how am I doing it, that whole interdependence thing? Because we live in a culture that doesn't do interdependence well. It does independence well. I know for me personally, I grew up in a family and in a home where you were taught to make your own way in the world. Be an individual. Don't rely on other people. Don't ask others for help. They'll probably let you down. And so I find it hard and have found it hard for my life to actually practice interdependence and to let other people into my life and into my world in such a way that I can trust them because it might involve asking them for help, which might involve a recognition of need, which might need us to be interdependent with each other. And that's hard for me. Living into community in that way involves risk because you're opening yourself up to other people. And within the Trinity, there's perfect love. Within human community, it's pretty hard to find that. So it does mean you're going to get hurt at some point. It does mean that others around you that you express a need to may not be able to meet it. It does mean that when you open up yourself and admit weakness and vulnerability and say, can you help me, that may be weaponized against you at some time in human community because of the world in which we live. It takes a risk to live into authentic community and it is hard work and it takes time and it takes a rootedness and a committedness to each other in order to develop that kind of trust. But even though I find it incredibly difficult and challenging personally, I also have found that it is worth it. Even with all of the shadow sides and the possibilities for hurt, it's worth it to fight for it because one of the deepest needs of our hearts as human beings is to be known, fully known for who we are, to be able to bring our full selves into an environment. And it's so rare and it's so hard and it's so fraught with complicated dangers that many of us avoid this in our lives. We guard ourselves even in close relationships, we keep part of our hearts away out of fear that maybe we will be hurt, maybe we've been hurt before. In Christian community, sometimes we avoid sharing our struggles, our real struggles with each other. Or we'll share about the socially acceptable struggles, but not the real ones that come in those deeper places of our lives. Because we think, well, what if that person judges me in my small group? What if that friend knows too much about me? 
and shares it inappropriately in some way. So we pull back and we turn inward. And when we do that, one of the things that we miss is the incredible and amazing gift of being fully known and fully loved. That's only ours if we're willing to take that step and risk authenticity. Henry Nouwen was a Catholic priest who taught for decades, most of his life, at some of the most prestigious universities in North America. He taught at Notre Dame and Yale and Harvard. But if you read his 39 books, which have sold over 7 million copies all around the world, you also sense in his writings a a profound openness with his sense of loneliness, his sense of desire to be fully known. For all of his adult life, he wrestled and struggled with depression. He wrestled with his sexuality. And at one point, uh, Nouwen was asked to go to Toronto to officiate at the wedding of some friends. And while there, he stayed uh, just outside of Toronto at a community called L'Arche, which is a community for those with developmental delays and disabilities. And the community was known as Daybreak. It's founded by a Canadian, Jean Vanier. And in that week that Henry Nouwen lived there, there was a tragic accident. A young man named Richard was hit by a vehicle and it threw the community into turmoil because the parents of that young man felt that it was the community's fault that this man had been injured. And so they asked Henry Nouwen if he would pastor both the family and the community through that situation. And he did. And he opened his heart to them and they opened their hearts to him. And he ended up living out the last decade of his life, leaving his prestigious academic posts and living and working amongst people who were developmentally delayed in some way. And they had such an impact on him because he learned what true community was about. He learned what it meant to need others and to be needed by others. And he writes about this powerfully. Uh, Many of his books uh, I commend to you. And he noted in one of them that community is that place where humility and glory touch. That place where when you bring yourself in in a position or posture of humility... It can be glorious. Whether in the love that the members of the Trinity have for each other or the love that a person with differing abilities expresses when they demonstrate their appreciation and need for you in the best ways they know how. Community is that place. Ideal community is that place where humility and glory touch. And we see this and we know this because our first model of community is God. The second model of community that we have for us in the Bible is uh, the early church. And so turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to look at one of the most potent descriptors of early Christian communities in Acts chapter 2. And we see that community is modeled for us, not only by God, but also modeled for us in the scriptures. In Acts 2, 
I'm going to read from verse 42 to verse 47. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. All the believers, it says, the new Christian community, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything that they had. They sold their property and their possessions, and they shared the money with those who were in need. They worshiped together at the temple every day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God, enjoying the goodwill of all of the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Now, I want to give you a tip when you're reading any section of the Bible. One of the questions you have to ask yourself is, is this a descriptor or is this a prescriptive passage? In other words, is this just a recording of what happened in Acts chapter 2? Is it descriptive of the life of that community at that place in that time? Or has this been included to give us marching orders? Is this a mandate for us? in Christian communities, should it really happen? And throughout history, there have been Christian communities that have set this as their template. Most of them have lived with disappointment because this is a very, very high bar. And so we have to tease out a little bit to figure out what are the elements here that are just descriptive of the experience of the first generation of Jesus' followers? And what elements are prescriptive that all Jesus followers who form themselves into communities at all times and all places should be about and concerned with. So let's run through a few of these things listed in the passages and we'll try and figure out where we should set our expectations. So let's talk this out together. The text says that they shared everything that they owned. What do you think? Descriptive or prescriptive? Descriptive, probably descriptive, right? There, there was a, a, a sense of such compelling need that they saw models of people selling all of their possessions and just laying it at the apostles' feet. Now, part of this was likely driven, we get insight into some of Paul's writings, that the early Christian community had this sense that Jesus' return was imminent, like any day now. And so there was just this sense of euphoric momentum that they thought, well, if Jesus is coming back every, any day now, like, I don't need to own property. Let's just sell everything and let's meet the needs of everybody that we can right now. And one of the things that uh, early scholars of the Christian movement look at is trying to trace out, did this work for them? And part of it was actually a really significant challenge. We read later on in the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians that Paul had to go around to the Gentile or non-Jewish churches in his missionary journeys and carry a collection back to Jerusalem. And a lot of scholars link through the fact that Jerusalem got a little overexcited with this sharing of possessions thing and so it didn't work out. And they were in a significant place of need. And so the other churches had to kind of come to their aid and support them because maybe they 
didn't need to step into this level of Christian community. So it's an interesting piece to kind of wrestle with and figure out. Does the text then mandate that we share everything that we own? Does the Bible give a prescriptive financial structure for Christian community? Probably not. This isn't, wouldn't be the text for that particularly. So let's look at another aspect of that. The text notes that they met every day. De what do you think? Descriptive or prescriptive? Probably descriptive again. I think that their gathering for corporate worship daily had to do with the way in which the first century world was ordered and structured. It was a lot tighter in terms of the network and in terms of responsibilities and geography as well. But the text doesn't say they gathered for worship daily, now go and do likewise. So it doesn't give us, it doesn't take the turn into prescriptive for us. So what about meeting location? This text gives two. It says that they met together in the temple and then they met in homes. Now the meeting in homes, do you think that's descriptive or prescriptive? Do you have to meet in homes? No, probably not. Um, it's interesting that some people take Acts chapter 2 to mean that Christians should only meet in homes and that owning buildings is a sin. So... None of the passages, though, that describe Christian community meeting together in homes, again, turn the corner to say, therefore, you must do the same. They describe the reality of first century life, that the home was the place of gathering, and often they had spaces that could accommodate these early Christian communities. But it's not mandated as a location. So meeting in homes, sharing the Lord's Supper, owning a building is not a sin just so we all are clear. <laughs> so then let's talk about communion, the Lord's Supper. Acts 2 says they celebrated communion every time the church gathered. And there are churches who practice this and take this as prescriptive, that every gathering of corporate worship must also include the celebration of the Lord's Supper. We take this as descriptive, a model for what was happening and occurring as opposed to a model for us to follow at all places and all times. But there are components in this text that are prescriptive, that we would look at and see them modeled for us so consistently and so transculturally that they would be something that we would say they must be present in order for Christian community to flourish and considered to be faithful. So there's a few of them, and I'm sure you could dig into this passage for more. The first one that we see is that they devoted themselves to teaching, to the apostles' teaching. Teaching and learning are component parts of Christian community. One of Jesus' last words to his followers was, teach them to obey. Teach the new disciples, those who engage with Christian community, to obey everything that I have commanded you. And so those early apostles who were with Jesus, the disciples understood that the transmission of truth, the following of Jesus' instructions to teach and to learn is a component part of Christian community. 
It's why we have sermons. It's why we have life groups. It's why we do things like Leader Lab or Lead Up. And we're going to spend time at the end of this month uh, with a few other church communities for a one evening seminar called Table Talks. It's something new that we're launching because we want you to learn. We want you to grow. We want to stretch your thinking in areas uh, that for you might be new or an exploration for you. We want to be people who, like we talked about last week, always have more to learn about God, about what it means to live together in community. And this is why, historically, the church has invested uh, partnerships with places like Bible colleges or seminaries so that people learn and can learn how to teach and train and think well. A commitment to thorough and balanced teaching is integral to the growth and the development of healthy Christian communities and to us as individuals as well. So that's one element. Next, we see that they practiced purposeful connectivity. They were together. They use the word in this text, fellowship. I don't love the word fellowship because I don't think it translates well. People outside of churchy world don't know what that means. What is a fellowship hall? What's the place where you fellowship? What is fellowship? They don't know. But whether in larger assemblies or in smaller groups, they sought out connection with each other. They desired to connect with other individuals. And Hebrews 10 verse 25 says it this way, let's not neglect meeting together as some people do, but when we're together, let's encourage one another. Now that the day of his return is drawing nearer. And so again, we don't get size or structure prescriptions in this. We just see there was a large group and then there were small groups. That's all we get the window into in this text. So there's elements of the design of those things that are left up to our imaginations and up to our discretion. But the sense that we gather corporately for the purpose of worship is something that's modeled for us in the New Testament. The New Testament makes a lot of statements that have assumptions of this built into it. When you gather for worship, you're going to sing songs. You're going to share in life together. The corporate gathering of the community is the time for place uh, and place for things like communion. You don't just sit at home as an individual with your grape juice and with your bread and have private communion. Same thing with baptism. Baptism is a corporate expression of our life together. We baptize people into community when we baptize them. And a gathering also, a public gathering, is part of our public witness to the world. Theologian Gordon Fee was fond of saying, Christian ethics is not primarily an individualistic one-on-one -on -one with God brand of personal holiness. Rather, it has to do with living the life of the Spirit in Christian community and in the world. A, a Christian living in isolation from community, a solitary Christian, is an oxymoron. So while the common purse and sharing all possessions may have been too much, there is also definitely built into this text a mandate for sharing what we have with those in need. 
joyfully and cheerfully. And so this is why we do things like take up a benevolence offering on communion Sundays. It's a mechanism for us expressing our desire to help others. And that's the corporate expression of it, but there's many, many individual expressions of this as well that you as individuals take on when you encounter a person who doesn't have a home and you provide them with food and water or a meal or a coffee. And here in our community, or in places like we heard already this morning around the world, like Guatemala, we share what we have with those who are in need. That is a part of what it means to be a Christian community. And Acts goes on to describe that they enjoyed the favor and the goodwill of people around them. And this is because they sought the goodwill of people and the welfare of their city. And this is something that Christian community must be about. It can become easy to, for Christian communities to become insular, to become concerned most primarily with the people that come and go within the walls of a church. And it can become over time like a social club, people coming and going generation after generation, no real or meaningful interaction with those who are mere meters from us, no meaningful impact on our interaction with the city. And you may or may not know part of our history here at Jericho, but for a season of time, almost eight years in our 15-year history, we met at the Langley Event Center. And when we moved there from the high school that we were meeting in, we said to the management team, listen, we want to be more than a rental group. We want to be a meaningful and integrated part of the way in which this place is going to serve our city. How can we do that? What can we do to help? And at that time, they were nearing the end of their construction and they actually had run out of money. And so it was a convenient time for that meeting and we said, well, let's explore that together. And so we went to our denomination, we actually borrowed money to complete the construction of the Langley Event Center and the meeting rooms that were on the upper floor there. And part of the reason that we did that was, yes, we were prepaying our rent and moving in and helping be a good tenant there, but part of it was to say, you know, we seek the good of our city. These rooms are gonna get used for a whole lot of other things other than church stuff, and we want to be a contributing member of our neighborhood. And so this is just an example of the creative heartbeat of this church. We want to be a blessing to our city. And that's going to continue for us here in this space. We want to be a blessing to Fraser Valley Elementary School and the parents and the students that are going to be here Monday to Friday. We want to be a blessing to our neighbors in Clayton. That's why we had the... Um, the uh, block party in August, and people were clamoring for it again, and we're going to do it again this summer. But we're still learning and growing in this new location and in this new geography what it means to be a blessing to people in Clayton and in Willoughby. And now that we have a facility, it's going to look a little bit different. And so I want to invite you to creatively discern together and ask God, God, what does it mean for us to bless our city? What is that going to look like for us in this season of time. Keep your eyes open, keep your ears open as to how together and individually we can love the people that God has put in our city. And then when God gives you an idea, 
bring it to us and we'll discern it together and we'll see if that's something that we can lean into collectively to seek the welfare of our city. Jeremiah wrote to the exiles and the people of God living in a pagan environment in Jeremiah 29 verse 7 and Jeremiah said, work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I have sent you. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. We are committed to the good and seeking the good of our city. That is part of what it means to live together in Christian community. And the last prescriptive part of Christian community we see in this passage and in the book of Acts is a posture of prayer. Christian communities are called to seek God individually and communally and to invite God to do things that only God can do. When we pray and when we gather for prayer, we ask God to do things that are miraculous. We ask God for healing and for signs and for wonders. We ask God for miraculous provision because friends, if we could do everything that we're doing as a church without God's help, then it's completely useless. There's no business doing it if we don't need to rely on God's spirit and God's work amongst us. We're smart, but we're not that smart. We're good, but we're not that good. There's no way we're gonna see transformation come and the good of our city be realized and people come to salvation if we don't get on our knees and ask the Lord of the harvest to send us out as laborers into his harvest field. This is what the believers did when they gathered. They asked God to move in power. They asked for a work of God's spirit. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come and to lead us. And we're going to celebrate communion together. And one of the things that we acknowledge when we celebrate communion is that the foundation of authentic community really doesn't have a lot to do with you and me. The foundation of authentic community is Jesus. They will know that we're Christians by our love for each other, by the way in which we live out the loving community that we see, but the community itself is centered around the cross. Theologian John Stott said it this way, the Christian community is a community of the cross. For it has been brought into being by the cross and the focus of its worship is the lamb once slain and now glorify. See, friends, authentic community is only possible because of the cross. And so we're going to celebrate communion a little bit differently today than we have in other places. I'm going to invite Joel and Sharon and Wally to make their way uh, to the communion tables. And sometimes when we do communion, we have people at the table serve everyone who comes. But what I want us to do today is actually to live out and embody an expression of community. And we're going to do that by serving each other. And so here are your instructions for communion.
as the team leads us in song, then when you come to the table, there will be people standing behind the table. So to start, it will be Joel and Sharon, and will be Wally and Sylvia. And you'll be the first person or couple at the table. And then when they serve you, I want you to take the bread, which represents Jesus' body broken for you, and take the cup, representing Jesus' blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And then once you've partaken at that side of the table, then I want you to go around behind the table and you serve the next person in line. Because we're a community of servants, a community of people that is committed to serving and loving each other well. So you'll receive the bread, receive the cup on this side of the table, and then you'll make your way around the back and you will offer the container for the bread and the container for the cup to the person that comes to the table. And then you'll move back to your seats from that. Why do we want to do it this way? We want to actually give tangible, lived expression to our theology of community, to get out of the sense of rows and looking at the back of someone's head and to look in their eyes and say to them, I am part of this community with you and you are a part of it with me. Let's rejoice in what God has done for us together. Whenever you're ready, you can make your way to the table and follow the instructions that have been given.